Intellectually petty radio on your stereo Don't compare us to anything, this a different scenario We break records while we pushing the culture forward Great music and big vibes right in that order Intellectually petty radio on the stereo Don't compare us to anything, this a different scenario We break records while we pushing the culture forward Great music and big vibes right in that order And you are now tuned into another episode of Intellectually Petty Radio. And you already know, man, I don't really do, you know, just the regular folk. We do legends around here. And today is absolutely no exception. Um, This one might surprise you a little bit. I have got a man that spent over 40 years in prison. Um, Used to be one of the leaders of the Aryan Brotherhood while in prison and changed his life completely around. Um, let's talk to him, Mr. Michael Thompson. How you doing, sir? Good, Joseph. Yourself? I'm doing good. I'm doing real good. How's life? How's your family? Well, I don't know that uh, myself or or they could be any better. We're just uh, we're living, we're thriving, and we're all doing well. Thank you for asking. Ah, uh, no problem. Um, and a lot of people is like, well, why are you inter- interviewing him? Because I'm I'm intrigued. Hmm. Um, I I watched the Vlad interview. Uh, first off, anybody that spent over four decades locked up is 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 a special individual. You got to mm-hmm. have a special kind of strength to do that. Um, having had family members been locked up for over forty something years, mm-hmm. um, I know it's not easy. Uh, so let's it, start. Let's yeah. let's start with. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say I agree with you. It takes uh, ego strength as well as uh, a certain mindset. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What year did you enter prison? 1973. 1973. Yeah. Okay. And when you go to prison, um, you don't go directly to the the place of your destination. They put you in like an intake, correct? Yeah, it's a reception center is what it is. And you go in and you, you complete a number of uh, psychological um, um, evaluations to determine um, where they're going to place you. Back then... They had a couple of institutions that dealt with vocation, so they would make a determination as to whether to educate you or to give you a vocation. In my case, because I was serving a life sentence, it didn't really matter. Okay. All right. Wow. What's it like to hear life? Like after, you, after you're in court and, and, and you get sentenced, like is it, is, do you, are you already expecting it or does it still like shock the shit out of you? I don't care who you are. I think it um, it touches you in a, in a way that um, is really hard to explain. And the very idea, especially in my case, I mean, I'd run the mountains my whole life mm. and um, hadn't spent hardly any time in the cities. So when they put me in a cage, um, it was a real revelation. Okay. And what year did you actually go to prison? 1973. Okay. So your first night after intake, what was that like? Well, you have to adjust. I mean, there's a, there's an adaptive process. Um, again, uh, I hold that um, probably the 
worst thing that you can do to a human being is put them in a cage. And that was especially true in my case. You know, the idea of being locked in a cage, uh, having run the mountains my whole life, um, was daunting. It was really the only time I ever contemplated committing suicide. Um, I just didn't think I could do it. But um, based on my spiritual path, my, my beliefs, um, that set me right. And so then it was just a matter of acclimating to the environment. Okay. And, and at what point did you say, yeah, I got this? Oh, I think that first night. Um, that might sound a, a bit optimistic, not mm -hmm. knowing what you're dealing with. But it's like anything else. I, Up to that point, I was 22 years old at the time, so I didn't have a whole lot of life experience. But the life experience I did have um, dealt with what I refer to as catastrophic events, floods, fires. Um, you know, I worked a horse ranch, cattle, and that type of lifestyle, you're confronted with uh, natural disasters and other types of catastrophic events. Okay. So prison just represented really another one of those catastrophic events that I had to contend with. Okay. Are you a big dude? You get into prison. Um, if I remember correctly, one of the first fights you had, you fought alongside some black dudes. Yeah, uh, it um, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. That was actually in the county jail. Okay. And uh, my celly at the time, um, his name was Bill Williams. And um, he was a black man. Mm -hmm. And some people objected to the fact that um, we were celled together. And uh, that didn't make any sense to me. Mind you, I had no um, reference point um, for racism at that time, other than the racism that had been, um, that I had been subjected to. Okay. Um, and just to give people kind of like a, a backdrop of that, you were, you were raised on, on a, a reservation. Yes. Mm -hmm. And pretty much like yeah. the only white guy, white appearing guy. I was the only one with fair features. That's a fact. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, so it um, you had individuals, whites, uh, in the jail itself that objected to the fact that we were celled up and um, essentially attempted to tell me that uh, I couldn't be cell, uh, cellies with uh, a black man. And uh, so I took issue with that, uh, as did Bill. And um, so we came out in the tier and, and um, we handled our business and no more was said about it. <laughs> okay so how do you go from that and and, and from my understanding mm -hmm. the the Aryan brotherhood initially as as you say was not it wasn't a racist organization well you have racists in every organization in my opinion but mm -hmm. uh, no it's it's ideology was not racist okay. uh, it was about controlling the three sources in prison and those were substantial and the way I look at it is that it may not have been overtly racist, but it was aware of the, the racism that gave them power. And they used that. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Um, you know, but that applies to all the gangs. And that's what the, the Aryan Brotherhood was. We called it the brand. It was a gang. Mm -hmm. And all gangs at that time were into controlling their resources. So it wasn't about advocating a specific ideology as it relates to white supremacy 
um, or otherwise uh, with the other gangs, whether they be Mexican or black or um, Asian. Um, the idea was to control your resources. And um, the brand did that quite effectively at Old Folsom in San Quentin at that time. Okay, and you got recruited. Mm -hmm. You know, you had to be, you you pretty much were undefeated. It sounds like before the recruitment. You know, you got into a couple of scrapes, scrabbles, squabbles, mm -hmm. whatever you want to yeah. call them, and you had hands. People could could recognize that. Yes, um, that's that's a fair statement. They you, you start getting recruited. You say no to 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 the Aryan Brotherhood initially. Why? Well, I had actually said no to the Black Panthers initially. They were, okay. the first, they were the first group to attempt to recruit me. Hugo Yogi Pinnell, who was their field marshal at the time, mm -hmm. um, attempted to recruit me. I'd been in an altercation in the prison that I'd come from. And, um, you know, the inmate grapevine preceded me. So upon my arrival, um, Yogi sought me out and attempted to recruit me. And uh, I declined. Um, and then uh, the Aryan Brotherhood was the second to attempt to recruit me. And I declined that also. Okay, why? Well, in Yogi's case, um, they were pretty heavy into the Communist Manifesto. Um, and in truth, I wasn't smart enough to even understand what communism was. Uh -huh. um, pretty ignorant. Um, but um, what I did understand about it is that it was uh, un-American, if you will. Okay. And uh, that was my perception, at least. So I declined on that basis. And um, so, you know, Yogi very respectfully told me that uh, if I wasn't with them, I was against them. And um, so that I, he instructed me to go in and make a knife and he'd meet me out there in the morning. And uh, we did just that. We went head up the next morning. And um, in the case of the Aryan Brotherhood, uh, I declined there, but there was no overture of if I did decline them that um, I was going to have to go head up with somebody. And um, and the reason I declined the Aryan Brotherhood is that my perception was that the few members that did exist at that time uh, were dope fiends. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, just the very idea of the Aryan Brotherhood, like communism, I didn't really understand what that entailed. Mm -hmm. I couldn't I couldn't read or write. I was not educated. And uh, so that in my ignorance, my perception was that um, they were racist and, and uh, dope fiends, and I'm, I'm neither. So I declined on that basis. My guess is that was probably a general perception. I think so, yeah. I, I, yeah, just the very word Aryan um, brings yeah. to mind uh, white supremacy, particularly today. But if you go back to the time of Hitler, and you know that's where the focal point usually rests, is yeah. uh, with Hitler himself. And of course, Hitler, as most people now know, was the um, the original jawjacker. <laughs> That's an interesting term. I don't think I've heard that uh, in reference to Hitler, amongst mm. other things. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so at what point, and matter of fact, let me say, how long did it take for you to well, a change your mind to decide to join the, the 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 brotherhood and b to get far enough up the ranks to be considered leadership? Hmm. Yeah, it was only a matter of months. Actually, what happened is I was approached by uh, four members of the Aryan Brotherhood who were also Native American, um, three Pit River and one Maidu brother, 
And um, they essentially just explained to me, matter of fact, the way they got at me, um, Bear Clemens was the one who was speaking to me. And um, he was a Pitt River brother. And he said, look, he said, we live better in here than we ever did on the res. Now, they knew I was an old res dog. I grew up on the res. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that resonated with me. So I asked for um, further information, you know, to explain that to me. So he started explaining to me how they controlled the resources. And in fact, they did live better inside prison than we ever did on the reservation. And um, so they started explaining to me how they controlled those resources. And um, so at that point, I, I made the decision to join the brand. Now, it took about a year, I suppose, to rise to a position of leadership. Uh -huh. And um, that was based primarily, well, there were two factors. One was uh, my ability to fight. And the second was um, my thoughts uh, relative to restructuring the organization um, more along the lines of a business. Okay. Um, what I perceived at that time was that a lot of money was being generated. There were a lot of revenues coming in, but those revenues were essentially going into the arms of the members by way of um, their addictions. So to my way of thinking, that needed to change. So I set about to change that. Okay. Um, so you get to you get to leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and how long are you at the top, so to speak? Um, after I attained that position, about three years, um, I was at one point in time giving the restructuring of the infrastructure itself. Um, we took a national vote and I was elected to a three-man commission that would oversee the activities of the Aryan Brotherhood nationwide. And, um, but I didn't hold that position that long, um, primarily because of um, events that occurred uh, not too long after uh, that commission was formed. Okay, so when you say, you, when you say nationwide, that's what you mean, literally, from California to, to New York. Yes, federal, federal penitentiaries, state penitentiaries, and, uh, you know, you had a, a number of different groups. Um, you know, the Texas Aryan Brotherhood um, was a little bit different in that it took a paramilitary approach to what it was doing. Mm -hmm. But you had um, factions of the organization that existed um, in virtually every state, uh, primarily because of the federal influence. Okay, so especially back in the seventies where mm -hmm. I'd be like, now it's prisoners with cell phones in the seventies, <laughs> you know, like communication for us all was limited. How do you, how, how are you giving orders to somebody when you're in San Quentin and they're in Fort Lauderdale? Yeah. Good question, Joseph. So the idea of associates, you know, any organization that uh, fancies itself um, as participating in organized crime as a faction um, is required to develop a network just if for no other reason than communication. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you cultivate associates on the street and um, you utilize those associates to travel. Um, and of course, you know, they can visit, uh, you have letters, you have codes that you use uh, in that communication. And um, so it's really not that difficult. I mean, in San Quentin, 
obviously we didn't have cell phones. They didn't exist then, but uh, CB radios did exist. So I smuggled in the CB units, and I was in the hole at the time, the adjustment center, just it was the overflow for death row. And um, I placed uh, units in all the blocks within San Quentin, and then I had the uh, home unit in the hole with me, and I could communicate with my membership through that CB radio. Okay, so when you say you in your hole, in the hole, you mean solitary confinement, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is absolutely with with, with the cooperation of somebody in, in in law enforcement has to be. Yeah, that's that's a given. Okay. Um. Wow. This is just. Uh, <laughs> it's not that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. But I guess to hear it, it 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 just it just uh. You can kind of see because in my mind, I'm thinking like like let's say the black gorilla family. Mm-hmm. It's probably numerically got a, probably always had an advantage numerically over the Aryan Brotherhood. Fair? Yeah. Yes. Yet somehow the Aryan Brotherhood has remained in control. Yeah, you want to remember that the primary currency in San Quentin and Folsom at that time was uh, was uh, violence. Um, and so uh, it's the ability to organize and execute that violence uh, effectively. Uh, that, that makes the difference. And then, of course, you know, when you have. You got the refs on your side, though. Pardon? You got the refs on your side. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But take by way of example, George Jackson and um, um, Hugo Pinnell mm-hmm. um, at the time in San Quentin. This was in the early 70s, I think around 72. Now, they took over the adjustment center and they did so with the help of uh, black guards Mm-hmm. And a black attorney who smuggled the gun into George um, under a wig, and they brought that in, and they took um, uh, white guards and and white prisoners hostage. Mm-hmm. Now, ultimately, George ran out into the yard with his thirty-eight special. I think um, more so to martyr himself than anything else, because he was immediately executed, mm-hmm. and that's what it was. It was an execution, but uh, Hugo. Uh, Yogi, he turned around and he cut the throats of the guards and the white inmates. Mm. And, um, you know, the reason, the way that they were able to take over the adjustment center was with the cooperation of the black guards at that time. So all of us, all of us had um, guards who were either on our payroll or were actual members. And, um, you know, that uh, assisted uh, our activities immensely. Okay. Um, George Jackson, did you know him personally? No. Okay. No. Did you have, like, like, like in listening to a couple of your interviews, mm-hmm. it, I got the impression that with the Mexican gangs, mm-hmm. there was more of a, an allegiance with the Brotherhood as opposed to with the black gangs. Yeah, that would be true with the Mexican mafia primarily. Okay. So there was there was an allegiance, and and of course that was about business. But you know, it's it's about generating revenues and how you generate those revenues. So with the Mexican mafia, mm-hmm. Joe Morgan, who was their leader at the time, um, he had uh, amazing connections on the street relative to um, black tar heroin. Okay. So it was a matter of um, utilizing that as a resource for the purposes of generating revenues amongst the the white population. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand. The other Mexican gangs, such as the Nuestra Familia and the Texas Syndicate, they were actually enemies of the Aryan Brotherhood. So they were at war with them. 
And oftentimes you would find uh, members of the Nuestra Familia, for instance, uh, cooperating with the activities of the Black Guerrilla family toward um, warfare with the Aryan Brotherhood. The enemy of my enemy. Yes. Mm -hmm. My friend, something like that. Yeah, something Um, like that. Yeah. Uh, So... (laughs) Because from the outside, just just as as a, as a, as a black dude that's never been mm-hmm. to the been to the joint, nothing yeah. like that. Um, I tend to look at things like it's racist or it's not racist. Hmm. Apparently, in prison, it is a lot of shades of gray that I'm unfamiliar with. I would agree with that. I mean, I, I think that's um, an appropriate perspective. You know, um, just by way of example. Um, you know, there are 485 shades of gray. And I would suggest to you that those 485 elements apply to this, the subculture of prison. Um, there's, there's always a dynamic at play. And it isn't to say that uh, racism isn't a part of that, because it is. Okay. Um, but more importantly, what's always out in front of that and it's really no different out here now, um, is your economic base. Your economic base is what facilitates your power base. Um, you've got to be able to back that up, but um, it's, it's the money, it's the revenues that you generate. That determines how your organization functions, how your members live, how their families live, and so on. Okay. So if you allow racism, for instance, uh-huh to prevail, then what you're going to have is you're going to have a prison that's constantly locked down. And if it's locked down, then you're not generating revenues. It's one of the first issues I faced at San Quentin, for instance. The neo-Nazis were talking out the side of their neck. Uh And um, as such, uh, they were inciting the blacks. So what would happen is that um, eventually the blacks would get off on the whites. Uh But they got off on whites that didn't have anything to do with what the neo-Nazis were doing. And the neo-Nazis were nowhere to be found. In other words, they were hiding out. Right. So, so they, you know, they talk all this shit, get everybody riled up, they hide their hands. Yep, all day long they'd talk it. So ultimately what I did is I took issue with the neo-Nazis and put them out of service. Um, just to step on that idea of what they were talking about and why they were talking about it, racism. And... Um, it was bad for business. Well, absolutely. And there's no value in it. You see, uh, I understand everybody has their, their own perspective relative to race or otherwise. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about business, uh, there's no value in advocating that ideologically or otherwise. Mm. So, so how did you get a bunch of dope fiends to buy into the business is more important? than your, your, your addiction? Well, the idea of organized crime and what that holds by way of potential, mm-hmm. uh, again, uh, that economic base. Um, you know, it's, it's the old sta- saying that, you know, money talks, bullshit walks. And, um, you know, that applies across the board, whether you're in prison or you're out here. Um, you know, that's the power base. And so... The idea that that potential existed uh-huh. uh, was intriguing. It isn't to say that, uh, for instance, once I outlawed drugs and drug use, uh-huh. um, it isn't to say that others still didn't use drugs. They did. But I was aware of that. Uh, 
And so, um, to my mind, because they were not dedicated to the organization, then they were expendable. And so that uh, if a task came about where um, it was an iffy situation and that individual uh, may suffer severe consequences, then it was one of those individuals that was using was sand. That's right. Okay, so so the people that you already are like, you know what, I really don't want to deal with you, but you kind of already in here. Mm -hmm. You might get killed in this scenario. Fuck it, I'm gonna send that guy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Um, Otherwise known as a suicide mission. What happens when they come back? They don't die. Well, then you put them to work. You see, you put them to work. Okay. And uh, hopefully they see as a result of what they've accomplished um, that they've gained status, uh, recognition, and um, that enhances their ego strength and takes them away from um, addiction. You know, addiction, I'm an alcohol and drug counselor. I mean, that's what I deal with on a daily basis mm -hmm. is dealing mm -hmm. with people who are addicted. But, you know, back then people used to think that addiction was about moral turpitude. And uh, we now know that it's a disease of the brain. But I'm here to tell you that I recognized elements of that all the way back then. Now, I'm a biologist by training, and eventually I educated myself, taught myself to read and write, and put myself through college. And so that enhanced my perspective, you know, relative to what I was dealing with by way of addiction and how to deal with people um, personality-wise. And it makes a difference. Okay, so at some point, and I mean, you, you go through... Like from, from you got a relationship with the Hell's Angels, you got a relationship mm -hmm. with the Mexican Mafia. You're one of the, the the biggest names in the penal system across the country. Yes. And you decide, I don't want this shit anymore. They they have a, they have pissed me off to the point I'm gonna leave. Not only leave, I'm gonna start telling on them. Mm -hmm. At what point? Like, what happened to precipitate that? Yeah, it wasn't really a matter of being pissed off, Joseph. It was more um, being confronted with two truths. Mm -hmm. You know, I was raised a certain way. I was I was raised with the Western ethos. And that is that you don't harm children, you don't harm women, and you protect your elders. And so the organization moved into a position as a result of other individuals testifying against them mm -hmm. that they would then execute, assassinate their families, their okay. women, their children, their elders. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I couldn't embrace that under any circumstances. So I had a choice to make. And the choice I made was a step away from that. However, because I was responsible for the, the development of the new infrastructure that was actually facilitating this new mindset, uh -huh. I felt the responsibility to address that uh, in court against those individuals that were killing women and killing children and, and, and did so. And uh, I went... Even further than that, I started providing intelligence uh, to law enforcement relative to the infrastructure of the organization for that reason. So, and, and from, from a street perspective, you snitched on them. That's right, yeah. Did that, and, and I guess that I'm looking at it as, like, how do you, you you've been in charge of, of a gang that has instituted hits, that mm -hmm. has prostituted grown men to other grown men mm -hmm. so dope willingly like at what point does the moral compass then kick in you know what i mean like why this particular event when you're dealing with innocent people when you're behind the iron gates you understand the game 
and everybody is in the game okay. um, regardless. And so you know what the rules are relative to that. It's like if you and I were going to go head up, we don't have a problem with that. We make our knives or we acquire our knives. Mm -hmm. We meet in a place and we do battle. And that's acceptable to me, even to this day. Um, I don't have a problem with that. Okay. Um, what I do have a problem with is when you take innocent people, women and children particularly, but also elders, that aren't in the game, that are unable to make a distinction, that have no perspective or mindset relative to what you're doing and why you're doing it. I get what you're saying. And now you're assassinating them, you see. Yeah. Now, that's, that's where my moral compass went haywire. And I simply could not condone that and would not condone that. So what was um, the particular incident that, that involved civilians that was just enough was enough for you? Well, there were two, actually. Um, one was um, an individual who had stepped away from the brand and was testifying against two members that had uh, assassinated an individual out on the yard um, as a result of potential warfare with the Mexican mafia. That's a long story, but... Um, he was testifying against the brand and he was placed in protective custody. And uh, so he could not be had. You couldn't get to him. Okay. But in those circumstances, what you do is, you know, you don't engage in um, the idea of hitting somebody or otherwise without realizing that there are potential consequences for that. You right. may get caught. You may do the rest of your life in prison. That's the commitment that you make to the organization on that basis. So it isn't about uh, I'm I'm going to do this and try to get away with it. You do that, and sometimes you do get away with it. But in the event that you do get busted, then you ride your beef. Okay. It's that simple. That's what a man does. Okay. Um, in this situation, the individuals who had been charged with the murder of this other individual uh, did not want to ride their beef. What they wanted to do instead was they wanted to kill the daughter and the mother of the of this individual that was testifying. Ultimately, what happened is that uh, they ended up assassinating his father. Um, but they wanted to kill his daughter, his mother, and his uh, wife. And um, that was one issue. The other issue was uh, Margot Compton, who testified against the Hells Angels, uh, second in command. Uh -huh. And um, she, was, uh, she worked a massage parlor. And um, so she was in the game. She, game. she was in the mix. And uh, she got popped. And so she testified against the second in command of the Hells Angels. He was convicted. He got four years, but um, she was um, a meth head. So the feds hit her out in Oregon, and she contacted her connection in, in the Bay Area, the city. Uh -huh. And uh, so, of course, the Hells Angels had the market on methamphetamine. So the minute she contacted her connection, um, that connection notified the leadership of the Hells Angels. Now, I know for a fact that um, the individual that ordered this hit, was it was a rogue hit because I knew Sonny Barger quite well, who was the leader at that time. Okay. And um, he didn't condone that. So it was a, it was a, a, a renegade move. And uh, so he sent two shooters up there, and they went in the side door. Her boyfriend, Gary, was on the couch. They capped him in the head, and they went into the bedroom. And um, they grabbed Margot and her two six-year-old twin daughters. And uh, they wrapped their arms around, the little girl's arms around the teddy bear. They held the mother, and they made her watch them cap the little girls in the head. Then they capped her in the head. Now, I don't hold with that under any circumstances. Okay. You see? So What's an acceptable it, punishment to you? 
Well, first and foremost, the punishment lies with Margot. She was in the game and she knew what that was. Gotcha. You see, so, you know, what's an acceptable punishment? Uh, Mm. Certainly not death. Um, You know, under those circumstances, like I said, he did four years. You know, and truth be told, I've never been in a situation like that, so I don't know what would be acceptable by way of recourse for that. Okay. Um, But certainly not death. Which is surprising, um, though. You would think that, as, as, as you know, especially a high-ranking member, that leadership would have instituted, okay, in, in case this shit goes left, with, with somebody doing X, Y, and Z, this is the punishment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would think that. But you want to remember that most of what you're doing is isolated to the controlled environment behind the Iron Gates. Mm-hmm. And so there are a multitude of factors that have to be taken into consideration relative to that. You're not dealing with people on the street. You know, ultimately, the goal is to um, establish uh, fronts, legitimate fronts on the street by virtue of organized crime mm-hmm. uh, to facilitate that. So it isn't to say that, you know, you're not going to move in that. But those organizations um, that are crime orientated um, do not engage in that kind of conduct simply because of the ramifications that it has otherwise. Um, within the community, within law enforcement, within the courts, and so on. So another way of saying that is that's bad business. Yeah. Like, I but, understand as a civilian, I understand you killing another gang member. Mm-hmm. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I chose that course. You killing that's that right. gang member's six-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That now, now my heart is bleeding. Yeah. Inappropriately and I, I, so. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to see everybody involved punished to that's the fullest right. extent of the law. So, yes. yeah, I, 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 I get what you're saying on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, you met a lot of interesting cats in, in the joint. Who would you say, just from your perspective, was just the most evil person you met? Well, I have difficulty even with the term evil. Um, I understand what you mean by it. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I've met psychopaths and sociopaths. I've I've watched a man kick a pencil into a man's brain just to see how it made him die. Are um, you serious? Yes, I'm serious. I've seen men decapitate another man and roll his head down the tier. Um, you know, and for a lot of people, that um, would be evil. Um, but because I understand the the dynamic of what it is to live in a cage and the impact that that has upon the psychology of a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually understand those actions and where they come from uh, within the soul of the individual perpetrating that kind of activity. Um, that's not justifying it. And it's certainly not an attempt on my part to glorify those type of actions. They're gruesome, they're gory. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, there's no other way to, assess that type of situation than that. But to say that they're evil um, is relative. Um, You know, if I were a Christian, then I would have a reference point for suggesting that those type of actions uh, are evil. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, but I'm, I was raised native and I still follow that path. And within that construct, uh, we don't have a, um, even a word, really, for evil really? Uh, within, with, within our language. Um, you know, um, some nations, the closest they come to that is a derogatory term typically directed at white people, wasichu, 
would mm-hmm. be one. That's a fat eater, pig eater. Okay. Um, and uh, so that's a that's a derogatory term. Um, but um, so I don't I don't have the reference point. Okay. Um, I know what you're saying. Yeah, but I've known men that, like I said, um, have done some horrendous things. You also had a relationship. Uh, I, I guess born out of, of uh, business. I don't know if for lack mm. of a better term with with Manson. Yeah. What was he like? Well, he gets this all the time. I'm sure. I do, but you know it. And, and, and I always clarify any statements I make that um, with um, the statement that I do not wish to perpetuate the myth that is Charlie Manson. I mm-hmm. mean, the media. The media made him. He was a pedophile. He was a punk. Um, you know, he used um, what he had learned in prison as a convict. Um, and he used that in addition to lysergic acid and other hallucinogenics to influence some young women and young men. And he did that effectively. Um, but beyond that, um, he was never in my mind a force to be reckoned with um, in any capacity. Um, I had a lot of dealings with the, the women within his organization, and to my way of thinking, they were uh, far more intelligent. Um, if, but you, if you just, used them also. Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So how is that different? What do you mean different in what sense? You mean I use right, Charlie yeah. and I use them both. Right, but you, um, you, you, you seem to look at him negatively for doing the same thing you did. No, it wasn't so much that I looked at him negatively. It's a, it comes down to projections. Okay. You see, the, the projection that the media gave him and so far as being the individual that they suggested that he was, mm-hmm. then knowing in fact what he was. Um, and so, you know, he never himself attempted to falsely project who he was. Okay. He knew his place. Okay. So, um, but... It's still a matter of using that influence over the women um, that he did in the capacity that he did mm-hmm. uh, that I look upon negatively. Mm-hmm. And that probably, in truth, has a lot to do with the uh, crimes that they committed. You know, a pregnant woman, I got um, you. you know, and, and other women in general. So I don't take issue with men fighting. Men fight. And, um, you know, that's... Um, that's been around a long time. Uh, it's not but it's, anywhere. No, it's not. But it's the way in which they fight. Um, mm-hmm. I believe in, you know, um, a warrior's code. Um, I believe that there's honor amongst warriors, and there should be. You know, Yogi and I uh, did battle many times, for instance. Um, Yogi, again, is the um, former field marshal of the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. But, um, and we did battle out on the yard. But when when we went into the visiting room in Old Folsom to visit our families, uh-huh. you see, we never did anything in front of our families. That would have been unheard of. We would not do that. Um, we would not subject our families to that. So that requires a, a code of honor yeah. that while we're in the visiting room, we will not engage. We will be respectful to each other and we will treat each other's families respectfully. And we did. But when we walk out into that yard, to do battle, we are going to do battle. Okay, so can anybody, let's say, and, and, and I'm going to transition to after you leave in, in a minute, 
But can okay. anybody under your leadership decide, okay, you know what, I want to take out the leader of the black gorilla family, it's just some random guy under in, in, in under your leadership without getting approval? What happens to that guy? Well, first and foremost, it would never happen. Um, everything, and that's why we call it a controlled environment. Okay. And um, so in a controlled environment, one of your resources relative to your infrastructure is knowing what's going on at all times. Um, you control who works where and why. And uh, if you're going to duck at somebody to a particular area so that something can be carried out, um, you know exactly what's happening, who's doing that. And all of those individuals, by way of associates and otherwise, have to answer to uh, that infrastructure. Okay. So that you're never going to have a situation, uh, unless it's spontaneous, um, where a rogue individual takes it upon himself that he's going to um, execute uh, the leader of the Black Rella family. That definitely, I could see where that would be a problem. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you decide to leave. Mm -hmm. the The whole world knows that you're leaving. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, you went into the lieutenant's office and called the Department of Corrections head yourself. Yes. Why do you have this? Like you just had this person's number. Uh, yes. You see, again, that's part of dealing with what you deal with. I mean, uh, at one point in time, at one particular prison, I had the warden come to my cell uh, where I would serve him a shot of whiskey and, and give him $50,000 to allow certain activities to occur within the prison. So, I mean, this is not unusual that I would have access to um, the upper echelons of um, the Department of Corrections. So after this guy gets to ch gets through choking on whatever meal he was eating at the time <laughs> yeah. you called him because he can't believe yeah. this shit, what right. happens next? Well, he um, he comes down to San Quentin and um, they take me over to New Miller Hospital, mm -hmm. and um, so he had made some calls, and first and foremost they didn't believe it. I mean, I was in control at that time, so there was no reason for me to want to step away from the brand. Um, so they were highly suspicious. And, um, but they brought in the ATF, the FBI, um, law enforcement from really all over. They filled the room. And um, so they essentially wanted to debrief me. Mm -hmm. But uh, for me, it didn't work like that. I mean, I, I talked about certain things um, that I thought were relevant as opposed to allowing them to dictate to me what they thought was relevant. But the main thing they were interested in was giving me a polygraph test mm -hmm. to determine whether or not what I was doing was um, authentic and, and sincere. You had to have a motive. They, they couldn't believe you just being altruistic, so to speak. No, that never would have occurred to them in any capacity. And it was a question of suspicion of suspicion and continues to this day. Um, you know, um, a good almost 40 years later. So, um, you know, that is a part of my history. And um, so it's something that I will probably live with the rest of my life. And it was no different then when I made that initial move to step away. Did you talk to anybody? I'm sorry, did you, did, did, I mean, did you, 
Is there anybody that you can confide in with this information or you just no one day I, I've thought about it, prayed about it, meditated, whatever you needed to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is my course of action. Well, I did have a visit from uh, eight elders. There was um, a gathering up north uh, in the Pacific Northwest, and um, they had made the trip down to San Quentin to see me. Mm -hmm. And they made the trip specifically to tell me that I could not serve two fires, that I was living two truths, and that I was not raised that way in the way that I was living now um, in my association with the Aryan Brotherhood was contrary to um, the way I was raised, and that I had to make a choice. And how, like, they waited all this time to say this? Well, it really wasn't that long. I mean, if this was, um, actually, that occurred in 1978, 1979. And, um, yeah, well, yeah, but I hadn't been a member of the Aryan Brotherhood, but, um, I'm in it. Okay. Um, and so, you know, my, you know, what I was doing, um, it always amazed me how the elders knew these things, but they did. Um
um, you know, what, you're going to go in and tell on them so that they raid them and then put them in jail for what? Um, so no. Um, but they did take me and they put me in what was called a restricted housing unit. There were only six of us in there. Mm -hmm. It was a special unit. Um, it was run by um, the special services unit and um, completely closed off. So that, say, for instance, if I went out to court, they would fly a helicopter in, put me on the helicopter and fly me out. Okay. Um, so, you know, you could call that uh, protective custody, but it really wasn't that. It was restricted housing. And that's because um, they had protective housing units in Soledad, two of them. That's where Charlie Manson and, and uh, Sirhan Sirhan and Warren Corona and others were housed. Uh -huh. um, so it wasn't until 1992, 10 years later, that they built a protective housing unit in Corcoran. And um, myself and four other individuals who were housed in the restricted housing unit were then moved to the protective housing unit with Charlie Manson and Sirhan Sirhan and Juan Corona and a few others. There were only about maybe a dozen of us in there. Why are they protecting those guys? What did they well, offer? They don't offer anything. It's the nature of their crime. So, you know, with... Charlie Manson, and pretty much everyone knows that. With Sirhan Sirhan, it was the assassination of uh, Robert Kennedy. And uh, with uh, Juan Corona, it was the killing of uh, 25 immigrants for their um, checks that they received from the government. So they were targets as such. And um, Who isn't? <laughs> Well, I understand what you're saying. In prison, that's true. But um, they're required by law to, because of their crimes, protect them. That is the weirdest shit ever. Like, like the worse mm -hmm. your crime is, mm -hmm. the more they protect you. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Speaking of protection, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm, I'm, I'm kind of ADHD. I'm all over the place. That's but right. I, I also, um, you you guys protected John Gotti at one point, correct? Yeah, him and others. How does some? How does like like how does somebody go about getting protection? Well, it's simply a matter of uh, you you set the meeting relative to um, whoever is in the joint, whatever joint you're talking about, and who's in control there. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a matter of sending somebody to him uh, to request that. It's it's uh, strictly business. And, um, you know, in the case of John Gotti, it was um, solely because he didn't have his own resources, in other words, his own members, mm -hmm. um, uh, sufficiently in numbers uh, within that particular facility uh, to provide him with appropriate protection. Mm -hmm. What's the, the consequence the, of of, let's say... Gang A decides we're gonna hit John Gotti. Mm -hmm. the, 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 like what happens? Well, it's not going to happen. Um, essentially, is what it comes down to. When you put protection on somebody, uh, it's not happenstance. It's because you control the environment in which he lives, totally. And huh. um, so nothing happens relative to his movement. Um, you know, and it's been suggested that it did happen to him. But that's why he sought protection. Um, but once he received that protection, then it never happened again. Huh. So it's okay. Beat up John Gotti. 
just because you feel like beating up John Gotti until he gets a certain umbrella. Yes. And it's been suggested that the brand actually set him up on that, that they actually facilitated him being assaulted. And then, you know, he had to come to them for protection. So now he has protection. But that's that's actually the very same racket that John was in. I was getting ready to say this. Sounds like some mob shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to burn yeah. down your store so you can pay us not to burn down your store. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's taken right out of that book. And um, <laughs> you know, there's irony. I, there's irony, I suppose, in that. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. How do you go from having everything that one can have in, in, in prison to everybody hating you? <laughs> well, organically you see, is, is the short answer, or naturally, if you prefer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not something, what other people think about me is none of my business. Okay. And uh, that's always been my attitude. Um, you know, I, I, don't, um, I don't hide out. I live my life. Um, and I'm going to live my life. So, you know, the idea of hate, um, I understand it on a very uh, visceral level. Um, I'm hated by law enforcement. I'm hated by other gang members. Um, typically people, um, within the organized crime community, but that's limited, not all of them. Um, but, um, I don't concern myself with that. Uh, what's at issue for me is doing what I believe is the right thing to do. And, um, you know, I do that when I go into court and testify. I don't go in for the prosecution. I've been called by both the prosecution and the defense. Uh-huh. But I don't appear as a witness for either. I'm there as a witness to tell what I know and only that. I'm not there to persuade the jury uh-huh. that what I'm telling them is the truth. I'm simply telling my truth as I know it, and that's it. What the jury does with that um, is up to them. Okay. And one thing I wanted to know also. Mm-hmm rival have you ever when you were in leadership did you ever use a rival gang to take out somebody else that you couldn't get to or or vice versa did they did they come to you and say hey we can't get this particular person on this one this is a mm-hmm. one-off we'll pay you mm-hmm. x amount of whatever mm-hmm. yeah those type of things do happen um the only exception would be within the organization itself. If it's uh, a member, mm-hmm. then that person is going to be taken out by another member. Um, but outside the organization, if you have um, an enemy, for instance, mm-hmm. that you can't get to, then yes, um, that happens quite often. Um, then you have, of course, um, what's called an open contract. So that if you put an open contract out on somebody, for a certain amount, uh-huh. then anybody can pick that up. Huh. What? I'm just curious. Like, what do you have to do to get that type of bread on your head in the joint? Well, I suppose I'm a good example of that. Um, you know, what you have to do. So the idea is um, it's taking what is perceived as a position against. Mm-hmm. Um, my position is that I'm taking a stand for something. So 
You know, I don't, I don't but issue from, challenge. From a random, just criminal perspective, you snitched. Yes, you see, but you need to understand the origins of that term, snitch. You know, mm -hmm. that's a, a rat, a snitch, an informer. Um, you see, I'm not a jailhouse snitch. That's a different person. That's a person who lies about information that they're offering to law enforcement to, to get somebody else um, time and doing that to their own benefit mm -hmm. so that they'll get time off their sentence or otherwise. Here we're talking about a situation where that idea of snitching mm -hmm. uh, is enforced by the gangs as a, a deterrent right. toward that very thing. I mean, it's it's one of the issues that I address with youth, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, this idea of, of don't tell. You know, in my attitude, if you see something, say something, you see, because it's about community. It's about relationship. It's about honor. It's about ethics mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're in the mix, you're in the game. That's an entirely different thing. Yeah. So you know what the consequences are. Yes. You got to ride that one out. That's right. Yeah. Me and, and you get in the car and decide we're going to go rob Bubba up the street and, right. and and we get caught, you got to mm -hmm. ride that out. Now, right. if I see you robbing Bubba and I was just at the store, mm -hmm. completely different scenario. That's right. That's right. Yeah. W were there ever any points where former rivals came up to you and said, I understand? Oh, yes. Yeah, there were individuals within the organization that stepped away themselves because of the position that I took mm -hmm. um, and cooperated with law enforcement. Uh, with some of them, I didn't particularly um, agree with the path that they took, mm. you know, toward that. Because, um, for instance, I'll just give you an example. There was a RICO prosecution of the brand uh, some years ago uh, where they indicted 40. And that included guards and, and individuals on the street. But uh, uh, the vast majority of them were facing the death penalty, mm. um, federal death penalty. And the individuals that were cooperating with them, former brand members, uh -huh. that uh, some of whom had stepped away because I had, uh -huh. um, were lying. In other words, they were prepared to go in before a jury and lie about the organization and the activities of the organization. And um, when they came to me, the ATF and the FBI and um, the um, U.S. attorney came to me for my cooperation in that, I declined. Uh -huh. and the reason I declined was because of the other individuals that they were using, and I knew that they were lying. Okay. So I was not going to associate myself with that. I'm curious. Um, why do you still call it the brand? It, it's almost, it, it's, geez, it, it's, it's kind of like shifting the, the definition, if you will. Like mm. when you say the brand, it's almost a glamour as opposed to when you say the Aryan Brotherhood, automatically there's a negative connotation, and it should there be. Mm -hmm. And we're in agreement. But I use the brand because that's the term that um, I most often used. Mm -hmm. um, when you understand the origins of the word, the brand, you, when you ride for a brand, and I grew up with the Western ethos, you know, raising horses, cattle, mm -hmm. uh, working a ranch uh, that had a brand, right. and, I and I rode for that brand. So that's the origins of the use of the term brand with the Aryan Brotherhood. So, you know, I have a brand on my ring finger. That's a shamrock. Mm -hmm. That was the brand that I rode for. And so that's why I particularly use the uh, reference to the brand. 
Um, that's my thinking. Aryan Brotherhood is more identifiable, but the connotation, as you correctly point out, is more negative. And it isn't that I'm attempting to shy away from that. Uh-huh. It's it's how I perceive it. You know, in this day and age, certainly the Aryan Brotherhood represents uh, white supremacy and and hatred uh, toward other races, and um, much much more than that. Um, but when I was a member of the Aryan Brotherhood, uh, that wasn't the case. So he, um, I feel like I should hate you. <laughs> I got, like just as a brother, you know, like yeah, and, sure. And, and and I was talking to somebody, and I'm like, you know, like I, I really should hate this guy, but I've been kind of mm-hmm. curious as also, you mm-hmm. know, I've, I've interviewed sure. a lot of people over a lot of years, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and some things are just more curiosity driven. I've always wanted to interview somebody like in the Aryan Nation, somebody in the clan, mm. just just because I just want to see where their heads at. And I'm mm-hmm. like, then when you talk to the guy, it's fucking nice. <laughs> Like it just it, it. I'm confused a little bit myself. Yeah, there is a conundrum there, and I get it. I do. You know, the the issue is is that you talk to an individual, and what the expectation is, is that there will be a subset or a uh, undercurrent of racism or hatred. Yeah. Um, and in me, you won't find that. Um, nor would you have ever found that. And I suppose that's the difference and the distinction you know, relative to the expectation that you have uh, in talking to a fair-featured individual that's a former leader of the Aryan Brotherhood, that um, there's an innate um, race memory on your part that dictates that you must hate this man because he represents everything that I despise. But in the course of the very conversation that we're having, um, you're not getting that from me. Nor will you, because it's not authentically me. Well, because, and also, I'm a pragmatic individual. Hmm. And I can understand there are people I really don't like. Hmm. I can understand being locked up next to a lot of people that I don't trust. Right. And that I may be here for the rest of my life. The moves that I make under those circumstances are not the same moves I'm going to make if I'm working a nine to five, I got a family and kids and I'm living mm-hmm. my life free. Yeah. So I, I get the, the, the idea of self-preservation, especially if you just happen to be good at, at, at beating the shit out of people. Yes. It makes a difference. You know, what you're talking about, Joseph brings to mind um, a brief story that I'll tell you. I have a friend, he's a brother mm-hmm. and, um, he was um, a ranking member of the Black Gorilla family. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were at battle at San Quentin. And when I was there in my leadership role, um, they used to practice every day. They, you know, he used to tell me how they they take, someone had drawn my image, my face, and they had that copied. And the members would paste that on the wall and they'd roll their mattresses up and put it underneath my face. And they'd practice killing me every day. <laughs> they practice killing you. Okay. Oh, yeah. So years later, um, I arrived at a facility, and I'd gone there to take a a course in um, uh, becoming a certified alcohol and drug counselor. Mm -hmm. And he was there for the same reason. And he had stepped away from the Black Gorilla family, and of course, I had stepped away from the Aryan Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. So they give me my assigned cell, and it's an eight-man cell. And I walk into my cell, 
And there's the brother laying right there on his rack. And he sits up in his rack and he looks at me. And he gets this big grin on his face and he smacks his hand. And he says, man, I used to hate you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And he was just keeping it real, you see. But that was no longer his mindset, you know. And we, we spent hours, days, months mm-hmm. talking with each other. You know, and, and eventually our families came together and we're very good friends. But the point is, is that, and he'd be the first one to tell you, is that he had been radicalized in his thinking, you know, relative to the hatred that was being um, extended toward him and how he dealt with that. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very intelligent man. And um, so, you know, the insights that he was able to give me toward his own radicalization uh, helped me understand um, not only him, um, but hatred in general and where that comes from. And uh, it's one of the things that I deal with today um, in talking to other groups. That's, that's an interesting one. It is, isn't it? It is. (laughs) Um, And, 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 and to be quite honest, not too many white guys get, you know, get that in, Get that opportunity. No, they don't. You're right. Or and why they would they? I mean, they who's going to who's going to trust them? Yeah, who's going to trust them with that perspective, that intimacy? Because that is intimate. You know, the very idea of what it is to be hated. You know, the the, the affront of racism itself, in and of itself, for itself. You know, and the intimacy associated with that. See, I once made the statement that violence is very, very intimate, uh, because it is. You know, you don't you don't engage in combat with somebody um, without close quarter combat at some point in time, and that's very very intimate. And um, the same is true, I think, of hatred, and where that comes from. So that when you look at the hate groups that exist today, and um, you know why they exist, you know what's at the root of that, and how do we touch that with something different? You know what is the process by which they are radicalized? You know, first and foremost, in my own mind, particularly as it relates to whites, we're talking about privilege and where that privilege comes from. Man. And the refusal to acknowledge that privilege exists, which in turn makes you angry. Oh, yes. Because you feel like somebody's taken something, some imaginary shit from you. When in all well, it's not just a feeling, it's a reality. You see, they're attempting to usurp your sense of identity. And with many people, that can put you in crises. Yeah, the problem is that sense of identity was built off the backs of people's misery. That's right. You see, and that's the tragedy that no one addresses. You see the origins of that and where that comes from. That's why I use the term privilege. You know, that that, that is an all-encompassing term. You see, and at the root of it, again, unfortunately, is that economic base. Yeah. Yeah. If you stop and think about just slavery in general. You know, yeah. and the economic base that created for this country. That, that people still eating off of. Oh, yes. And, and refuse Absolutely. to acknowledge it. Well, of course they do. Yeah. They, they, they they'd they have do. to pay us back. Well, it's not just paying you back. It's had, they, Then they'd have to deal with the shame and the guilt associated with that. And no one wants to do that. No. You see, I, I hear it all the time. You know, well, I'm not a racist and I didn't have slaves. That's irrelevant. You see, it's about the environment in which we live. And the epigenetic impact that environment has upon even our cellular regeneration, 
know, as it relates to being a human being and the impact that that has on not only our brain chemistry, but, you know, the, the very dynamic of what goes on with us physiologically. Hmm. Yeah. You ever lost a fight in prison? No. 40 something years and not one. 45 years is what I spent behind the iron gates. And it isn't to say that I can't be had. I, I believe any, any person can be had. Um, Apparently not. You're fucking Superman. No, I'm just fortunate. And it's, you know, my, my elder taught me martial arts. Uh-huh. And um, he prepared me to survive. He didn't pre- prepare me to survive in prison, but that's how it played out. And, um, you know, when I added to that, you know, the mainstay for me, Joseph, was my spirituality. Uh-huh. And then when I added to that, my education, you know, and then you couple that with uh, physical prowess, that's a pretty good combination. So you can take, um, if you will, a Sansuian approach insofar as know your enemy, know your terrain, mm-hmm. you know, infiltrate, so on. There, there, are, there are a number of manifestations of that um, that I have used uh, over the course of my life and continue to use to this day. It's just a matter of flipping the script. So, in looking back, mm-hmm. the Brotherhood used you. Well, that's one way to look at it, of course. Of course they used me. They, they used my ability, my physical prowess, to give them standing within um, the community behind the Iron Gates. Mm-hmm. Um, you see, but that also gave me standing as it relates to that, to become a leader. But yes, I understand your point, and your point's well taken. Any regrets? Oh, I don't see a lot of value in being regretful. Um, if being regretful provided me the opportunity to rectify, mm-hmm. uh, to make amends, mm-hmm. then certainly I would give that application. Um, but it requires a lot of um, searching mm-hmm. uh, within oneself. You know, so much of my emotional development was arrested because I came to prison so early. Mm-hmm. And then I engaged in the process for 45 years of survival uh, at its pinnacle, when I say survival. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't have time to actually emotionally mature. And uh, so the one thing that I, I, I really lacked and, and, and I'm regretful of is that um, opportunity and that ability to emotionally evolve as a human being. You know, that's a process that I engage to this day. Um, and you feel, so you feel like you're emotionally, uh, like, like, like you, like, where most of us are at, let's say 97% emotional mm-hmm. maturity. Mm-hmm. Where would you put yourself at? Well, in many regards, back at the age of 22, I don't have the life experience emotionally to, to have evolved. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, that's been arrested. So first it's a matter of recognizing that it has been arrested. Then it's a matter of, of, um, addressing it, okay. confronting it, okay. and, and dealing with it so that um, I can evolve not only in my humanity, but my emotional regulation so that I can have meaningful relationships and interact socially and um, be at peace. What's the first thing you did when you got out? Um, well, I embraced my wife. Uh, who picked me up at the train station. 
And um, then we went and we had a meal. And um, we sat up all night um, talking, just enjoying each other's company. And the, um, the fact that I had been freed, we never expected that I would be released. Um, okay, so so that, mm -hmm. It's one thing being married locked up. Yeah. With no expectation of being released. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to have to actually face being married free. Yeah, that's very astute on your part, Joseph, uh, because it's true. Um, you know, being locked up, and it's one of the things that I attempt to address today in my work, as does my wife, mm -hmm. uh, is preparing individuals and their families, mm -hmm. you know, for what they should expect when they are released. You know, the greatest hardship is not so much on the individual that's being released. It's on the families um, and what they have to contend with, especially if they have a loved one coming out of prison that is not prepared. Um, it's a very, very difficult path. And uh, oftentimes what happens, unfortunately, is that individual that's coming out of prison falls back on his or her conditioning, whether that be addiction or crime in general. Yeah. Um, to them, that's their means of survival. And that's yeah. all they know. Yeah, I've seen that firsthand. I had a I cousin too, that um, killed somebody, did 20 years, hmm. and within six months killed somebody again. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think it was about the killing the second person. I think it was just he needed to go back. And perhaps he knew that. I think and so. that, was the only, that was the only avenue by which to attain that. Because, like, from my understanding, he had status in the joint. It's like not yeah. one of my closer cousins. Right. But from, you know, from, from my understanding, like, when he was out, he, he mm -hmm. didn't have any status. But when he was locked up, apparently he, he you know, that environment suited mm -hmm. him. That became his, his identity. It did. I've seen, I've seen that too often. I've seen individuals uh, that never made it out, uh, primarily because they were due, they were scheduled to be paroled and didn't want to go. Because out on the streets, they had no sense of identity, as you say, status. Mm -hmm. Inside, uh, they were that guy. Yeah. And, um, you know, too often, unfortunately, that's why individuals will project themselves either through tattooing or uh, demeanor in general as having done time when they never have. And that's fa false projection is usually what gets them in a wreck. Um, but they do that because they're seeking status. They're seeking identity yeah. you know, relative to that. And that's extremely unfortunate. It's sad, actually. Extremely, because then you get locked up and realize you're not built for it. That's right. Not everybody is cut yeah. out to be locked up in a cage. But look at our youth today and the opportunity all of us have. I mean, you're in a perfect position, you see, to, to express to youth, you know, by having people on, such as myself, you know, that have the experience of being behind the Iron Gates and what that means. And the ramifications that has not only on the individual, but on my loved ones, my family, and my community, and so on. The problem is, is that they only see the first half. Well, yeah, that's what youth is, that undeveloped brain. Yeah. See, so it's recognizing that the brain is not developed and providing them with alternatives to that. Well, see, Role they, what, what they'll look at is they'll say, you made it to the top of the AB in, in, mm -hmm. in a year. Mm-hmm. I could be that guy. Mm -hmm. And for whatever, the Mexican mafia, and the, the the black gorilla family, for whatever, mm -hmm. you know, suits you when you get in the joint, 
And what they fail to realize, and I hope that, that somebody out there gets this, is that that's the top 1% of the 1%. That's right. Everybody else is expendable. And that's what I try to tell kids today. You see, is if you're being recruited by a gang, you're expendable. Because they're going to use you to their bidding, whatever that may be. And you're going to be cast aside at some point. You're going to be used at some point. You're expendable. Now, a lot of people would argue with me over that. Mm -hmm. But if they'll simply take a hard look at the history of all gangs, this is what they'll see. You know, people become a member of a gang primarily because they want to be loved. They want, they want to be a part of something. They want a family. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. So the alternative is to provide them options relative to that, whether that be through mentorship or organizations that facilitate that very sense of belonging and community and family. And I know, I know we uh, only scheduled an hour, so I do apologize for going over. Don't worry about that. I rather enjoyed the conversation. Mm, as um, did I. The, you've got a situation ongoing. Yes. How, is everything okay with that? You okay? Yeah, it is. It, it's working itself out as I knew it would. There's a lot of politics involved in it. You want to remember that I'm a poster boy. Um, you know, I was never supposed to be released from prison. And after 45 years, the governor made the decision to let me go based on the merits of who he perceived me to be as a human being. Uh -huh. And uh, I was released. Did you talk to him? No. Okay. I talked to the um, his delegate, which is the commissioner of the board of parole hearings. Okay. And um, he was a former warden. Uh, his name is Randy Grounds. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was old school. He was a warden. And um, he was somebody that uh, insisted that you talk to him directly. And he did the same thing. And so we had a conversation. Mm -hmm. And he was able to discern and ascertain for himself um, who I was and the authenticity of who I projected myself to be. Mm -hmm. So as a result of that, under the Youthful Offender Act and the Elder Offender Act, uh, which both applied to me, um, he made the decision to release me. And, um, you know, when he gave me my date, he sent me out of the room as they do. And then they called me back in and he was standing on the other side of the table and he extended his hand and he shook my hand and he says, I have something I need to tell you. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, you're a very humble man. He said, if you will embrace that humility every day of your life, you'll be okay. And I've never forgotten that. And I think it has value because I'm a firm believer that humility can't be taught. It comes from our life experiences. And if the perception of me is one of humility, then I have a responsibility to uphold that authentically. You remind me of, well, actually, you know, it, I, I, the native comes out in mm -hmm. that they kill a buffalo mm -hmm. and it's not killing a buffalo to wear a coat. Right. It's killing a buffalo because they are one with nature mm -hmm. and that buffalo is supplying their family with existence. And they're mm -hmm. appreciative of that mm -hmm. buffalo's life. Yeah. The buffalo is actually a relative, Tatanka. Uh -huh. This is how he's referred to. And so as, as, as Tatanka, he's a relative. And it is said in the creation stories of the people that the animal people, the four-leggeds came together and they made a decision as to provide sustenance to the two-leggeds. And so that in that relationship, you honor that. So that when you take an animal, you harvest an animal in that capacity 
as sustenance, then you honor that animal by making offerings so that the rest of that particular nation can see that you're being respectful toward that animal as a relative. And it kind of seems like you looked at that. That's how you looked at combat. It is. And, and I can, even your enemies appreciated that. I always not only prayed for my enemies, but treated them with the utmost respect. Um, because every human being in my mind is deserving of that, regardless. Yeah, me and you differ on that. Well, some people don't deserve that shit. <laughs> <laughs> just some people just... Yeah. I understand. If there's somebody that's born with an IQ 100 times greater than the rest of us, there's mm -hmm. somebody whose IQ or whose, whose moral compass doesn't exist. Well, you're right, and, and, and I agree with that. So, you know, that doesn't stop us from loving them. You see, it really doesn't. You know, the idea of of what people do. I mean, I, I when I became a counselor, they asked me to run a group for sex offenders, mm -hmm. child molesters, yeah. and I agreed to do it. And really? it was the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life um, to have to sit and listen to their stories so that we could find a way by which to bring about some change in them. I now hold the opinion that is impossible as a result of those experiences. Um, you know, bigotry wears many feathers. It really does. And, um, and I don't have a problem with that. I understand it for what it is. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that we are precluded from finding a solution towards still treating that individual or those individuals as human beings. As, well, and see, my thing is, and, and, and I've said this before, like you get the random white guy, like mm -hmm. the other day, um, I'm a proponent of supporting black owned businesses. Mm -hmm. That's why a guy just lost it on me. That's racist. That's this. I say, have you ever had this conversation with, with Asians or Jewish mm -hmm. people or, mm -hmm. or Mexican people? No, you yeah. haven't. You're, yeah. you're offended that black people want to do this now because you've been eating off of us for so long. It's more than that, I think, uh, Joseph. I think it's um, an inferiority uh, characteristic. It's, and it's made fear. More, well, it is fear, you see. Yeah. That's what an inferiority complex is. True. It's fear. Yeah. And, and that's what we're dealing with. These characteristics are not difficult to identify. They really aren't. And so that in the identification of them, we have an opportunity to change them through communication, through relationship. I'm not about competing. I'm about cooperating. Mm -hmm. And that's what I seek is cooperation in any dialogue. You know, I want to address white supremacy. I want to addre address racism and hatred, you see, but there's, there's a form for that. And, and I would like that form to be nonviolent. I understand that there is a need for violence, that you know, circumstances are such that it is brought about, whether it be through warfare, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. You know, that people have a need to protect themselves and should protect themselves. Yes. Particularly when that threat is um, clear and present. Yes. Yeah. You see? Yeah. But beyond that, there are other factors involved. You know, I do not want to see our youth radicalized by the idea of hatred, no matter what their ethnicity is. Mm -hmm. You see? You know, I am seeking cooperation toward a dialogue, um, toward understanding, a cooperation, relationship, community. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't want, I don't want this country to explode either. Well, that's well said, well said, Joseph. Because unfortunately, I believe that's where we're heading. I do too. Yeah. Um, but I also don't feel like the onus is on black people to fix what we we didn't create. I think the onus is on all of us as human beings. It's not about. I think we've done our part over the years. Well, we've got our ass just... kicked. We've got lynched. We've got killed. We got murdered. Yeah. You know, no. and we still were nonviolent. We loved the enemy, blase spleen. Mm -hmm. At mm -hmm. some point, we just got to stand to the side and watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could say the same thing about Native Americans in the same context. Absolutely. You know, having, you know and so I understand what you're saying, having grown up on the res and, and being raised Native myself. Mm -hmm. um, but the only racism that I've ever really been exposed to in my youth was by other Natives because of my fair features. So I get it um, to that extent. You know, it would be ludicrous on my part and disingenuous to mm. suggest that uh, I can put myself in your shoes as a black man. I can't. Mm. And um, so, you know, I don't know why people attempt to do that. That's not the issue, you know, and I don't disagree with your uh, analysis of the situation insofar as, you know, what you've done and, and why you've done it. But now, in my opinion, is not the time to sit on the sidelines and say, I've done my part. Now is the time to step forward. And I see many individuals doing that. I've watched some of your podcasts where mm -hmm. that is happening, you see. Mm -hmm. And um, so it, it comes down to dialogue and how we facilitate that dialogue. You, with your channel, have an enormous opportunity to make a difference in that, in that dialogue, you see. And attitude is 90% of that, how we approach that. But in truth, that attitude has to be authentic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree mm -hmm. with you a thousand percent on that one. Mm -hmm. um, anything you want to say, leave with the people? Um, I don't know. I know. Well, George, I, I want to thank you for having me on, first and foremost. I deeply appreciate it. Um, anything that I, you know, I'm, um, I'm a simple man with simple ways. And uh, if any of your viewers have questions, you know, that they think I can answer, I'd be more than happy to answer them. Um, you know, I have, um, I have a nonprofit organization, Live, Learn, and Prosper. I'm putting up my own podcast. So, you know, if they want to get a hold of me, they can. And I encourage them to do so. And um, I will attempt to answer any questions asked of me. I, I don't shy away from questions. Okay, good. I can tell. Um, and, and, and I want to thank you for coming on. Um, it's definitely My been pleasure. an interesting conversation, and I appreciate I always mm. appreciate a good conversation. It's just mm. we share that. kind of how I'm wired. Mm -hmm. um, and if there's anything I can do for you, please don't hesitate to uh, give me a call. Thank you, Joseph. Oh, no I problem, man. It. On that note, man, you have a good one, man. And I thank your family for loaning you to us for a little mm. bit. Um, mm -hmm. And be safe, man. Have a good and one. You. And you. All right, All right Joseph. Bye. Peace. That was an interesting conversation, um, and to be quite honest, he's a fucking nice guy, and that I feel like I should really hate. I do. Um, but I think it says something about dialogue and speaking to people, and, and more importantly, listening to people. Um, I can talk to anybody, and I can listen to anybody if that person is of value and substance. And salute to Mr. Thompson for being both. I do appreciate your time, your wisdom, and your energy, and anybody out there that um, 
has not yet subscribed to the channel, please do so. Like, share, subscribe, the whole nine. Oh, and I got so wrapped up in the in the conversation, I forgot my uh my commercial. So let me get to that real quick before I wrap it up. Stop trusting your cousin with your footage. If you need greatness, contact greatness at photosbyven at gmail.com. Or you can get a brother a call at 1-862-500-1532. All right, peace. On that note, man, y'all have a good one. This has been another episode of Intellectually Petty Radio. Um, peace to y'all, and I'll holler at y'all. Oh, we are taping another episode of Everything and Nothing this Wednesday. That should be dope. Y'all check out for that. Um, and I got another episode, as usual, this Thursday. Um, and let me make sure that I get the brother's name right, uh, because I do. And Malik Yakini, we're going to be talking about food, race, and justice. So that should be interesting. Um, on that note, man, I'm out. Y'all have a good one.